Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, author, well, me. In a few moments, I'll be joined by colleague and friend Elizabeth Kornhauser to talk about my new book, Emerson's Nature and the Artists, Idea as Landscape, Landscape as Idea. It officially ships on Tuesday, but I'm hearing it's available now around the U.S., the U.K., and Europe. The book features a new appraisal of Ralph Waldo Emerson's classic 1836 text, Nature, new research that reveals how it was informed by Emerson's engagement with American art, and critical analysis of how the ideas Emerson offered in Nature informed American art for a hundred years after it was published. My new book will also examine how Emerson joined his Anglo-Saxon white race theory to ideas about nature in ways that helped bake whiteness into the American landscape tradition. Emerson's Nature and the Artists will also feature about 75 artworks that will be reproduced in line with my essays and within the full text of Emerson's Nature. In adherence with Emerson's landmark definition of landscape, all of the images in the book come from museums and libraries with open access policies. Hooray for the people that make that possible. Betsy Kornhauser is a curator in the American Wing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. This is her third appearance on the program. Most recently, she joined me to discuss Jules Tavernier and the LM Pomo, which is on view now at the Met. Emerson's Nature and the Artists is available from IndieBound and from Amazon. We'll have links to the book from the show page at manpodcast.com. And if you'd like a personalized signed copy, message me through the contact form at tylergreenbooks.com and we'll arrange it through my local indie. One quick note before we get to my conversation with Betsy. To a significant extent, this book came out of my experience with Betsy and co-curator Tim Berenger's 2018 exhibition, Thomas Colt's Journey, Atlantic Crossings, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. At the Scholar Day near the end of the exhibition, Betsy invited me to say a few words about what seemed to us the evident similarity between Thomas Cole's 1836 Oxbow and the key passage in nature in which Ralph Waldo Emerson defines landscape. Betsy and I will discuss that on the show. I had studied Emerson while writing my first book, and it had become clear to me that Emerson was important to art and to artists. And so I thought it would be fun to share some of that thinking and research and process with the art historians gathered at Betsy and Tim's show. So while I was standing in front of 40 or so historians, each of whom um, was and is more accomplished than I am, I read the relevant sections from nature that seemed to define landscape with a description that matches the oxbow and, and waved at the painting. I think I said something about how I, I thought the potential relationships between Emerson and Cole and Cole and Emerson and Emerson and American art merited more investigation. And Betsy from across the, the gallery looked back at me and nodded. And absolutely no one else did. <laughs> so I thought, yikes, I have some work to do. And that's kind of how we got to this book. On the second segment, Lisa Corinne Davis at the Sheldon Museum of Art. But first, Betsy Kornhauser joins me after the break. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents their annual benefit art auction and concert, Omaha's largest and most beloved celebration of contemporary art, on Friday, October 29th. Tickets to this year's event, celebrating Bemis Center's 40th birthday, are on sale now. The nearly 300 works of art by more than 200 artists are available to view and purchase online at Buy It Now prices beginning October 1st. The Benefit Art Auction Exhibition is on view to the public free of charge October 15th through 29th. Along with the artwork on view inside Bemis Center's galleries, the benefit includes an outdoor tented block party, outside food and beverages, mobile bidding, and live music at low end, 
Bemis Center's music venue, featuring experimental rock duo Shoo Shoo. Proceeds support participating artists and Bemis Center's operations and artist-centric programs. Details, including Bemis Center's COVID safety policy and protocols, can be found at bemiscenter.org benefit. Gene Brown's trove of Dada, Surrealist, and Fluxus artworks was one of the first comprehensive collections of 20th century art at the Getty Research Institute. The new exhibition, Fluxus Means Change, Jean Brown's avant-garde archive, reveals her intuitive and innovative collecting strategies, featuring artists including Marcel Duchamp, George Machunas, John Cage, Klaus Oldenburg, Yoko Ono, and others. Now on view at the Getty Center Museum and presented in English and Spanish. We invite you to take a closer look, listen to an audio guide, and make free advance reservations at getty.edu today. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, has reopened to the public with a new exhibition in relation to power, politically engaged works from the collection. The exhibition focuses on ways that artists comment on and often vehemently resist the dynamics of inequitable systems of power. The show includes more than 80 works by 57 artists, including works on paper, paintings, sculpture, photography, and video. Many works are on view at the Nasher for the first time, through February 13th. Also, Off the Map, The Provenance of a Painting, is an intimate exhibition that provides a case study in provenance research of a single work in the Nasher Museum's collection, Portrait of an Artist, attributed to Joseph Wright of Derby. From England to Berlin, New York to Durham, the 18th century painting has journeyed far and seen numerous owners, auction houses, and exhibitions since its creation 250 years ago. On view through January 9th. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Tyler, I'm really pleased to welcome you to the podcast today. I know you're putting on a different hat where I will be interviewing you about your new book that is just off the press entitled Emerson's Nature and the Artists, Idea as Landscape, Landscape as Idea. And I've had the pleasure of reading it recently and found it fascinating on a number of fronts and thought I would begin by just stating that your book explores how Emerson's seminal publication, Nature, published in 1836, was informed by American art and over time managed to inform the works by many of the country's leading artists. And in your introduction, you provide a really interesting contrast between the period terms landscape versus wilderness, which hasn't been written about a great deal. Wilderness, I think we understand better, but your definition of landscape and Emerson's use of it was really interesting. And I wonder if maybe we could start there. Hi, Betsy. Thank you for doing this. The only thing more delightful than being on my own podcast is being on it with you again for the second time in a, in a few weeks, third time overall. Yeah, I was really fascinated by how the word landscape happened in the early 19th century. I think today, and really for the last half century, we, both Americans, but also American art historians, have tended to use the words wilderness and landscape pretty interchangeably. A picture of the outdoors is a landscape picture, whether it shows you know, City Hall or Mount Shasta. But in the 19th century, and when Emerson is writing, the word landscape was new to English and newer still to American English. 
And a great example of that is one of the first American authors to use the word landscape in his books is James Fenimore Cooper. So in, in his book, The Pioneers, which is what, about you know 13 years, something like that, before Emerson writes Nature, Cooper uses the word landscape a couple times. One usage, you know, we can figure out what it means. And another of his usage is, usages of the word landscape, you know, you read the sentence and you're like, uh, that's not what that word means. And, and so in the 1820s and 30s, the definition of, of landscape in American English was in flux. The word comes in from the Dutch. And for the Dutch, it meant the outdoors and because Dutch painting so much about the outdoors and the land quickly came to mean a painting of the outdoors as well. And in American English, it was still in the process of being defined. So this is an important idea to Emerson because he's writing about nature, which is an abstract thing. And he wants to give Americans a place to think about nature, a physical place where they can think about experiencing nature. And so in the third paragraph of the first chapter of the book, he defines landscape. It's that important to him. He wants for the rest of the 15,000 words of the book for everybody to be clear on what he means about landscape. He defines landscape this way. He writes, the charming landscape, which I saw this morning, is indubitably made up of some 20 or 30 farms. Miller owns this field, lock that, and manning the woodland beyond. But none of them owns the landscape. There is a property in the horizon, which no man has, but whose eye can integrate all the parts, that is, the poet. This is the best part of these men's farms, yet to this their land deeds give no title. And I think that's a staggering paragraph in the context of hyper-capitalistic, expanding, increasingly imperial 19th century America. Emerson is challenging the capitalism at the root of American republicanism and the American system. And, and he's suggesting that we find value, non-monetary value, in our land and in our ideas. I mean, you make the point too early on that, and this is probably the inspiration for your book, that... Emerson, unlike artists like Thomas Cole, who've been studied recently, very, you know, in regard to what you've just been discussing, Emerson was kind of jumped over by many scholars, and they tend to begin with Thoreau rather than Emerson. And it's interesting and hard to understand why that happened. And his insistence of the idea that American culture should stem from America's nature, was in the air at the time. And, and we will have to spend a good bit of time looking at the parallel careers of Emerson and Thomas Cole, and certainly the year 1836 in both of their lives, where they seem to be speaking the same thoughts and visions, one as a painter and poet and one as a writer. But why do you think Emerson, you know, not focused on, particularly by art historians? I mean, I think there are two primary reasons. One has to do with the way Emerson wrote his writing style. Thinking of Emerson, I think of this. Emerson's nature is almost as old to us as Shakespeare was to Emerson. You know, these are, these are 185-year-old words written in a style more in line with 185 years ago than now. Emerson was writing in chewy, dense prose in the 1830s, and it reads even chewier and denser now. One of the things I hope the way I've treated the book is that as you read my new book, I've included the entire text of nature along with about 65 paintings and photographs. And, and hopefully that dissolves some of that chewiness. 
But I think also the 1960s mattered a lot. And Thoreau's ideas about citizenship, the responsibilities of the citizen, any citizen, and nonviolence and protest were very in tune with the 1960s. And as the 1960s addressed wilderness through things like the 1964 Wilderness Act, Thoreau's writing about wilderness and his address of wilderness was more within the spirit of of that American time and has often been considered to be ever since. And I think that's all true and wonderful and great. Emerson is deeply, deeply interested in the idea of the American nation, which will be an interest of artists, American painters and photographers across the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, at least to 1876 and the centennial. We as Americans don't think as much about what is the idea of the American nation as much as Americans did in the mid-19th century. David Blight, the great Yale historian and biographer Frederick Douglass, about two years ago, wrote an essay in the New York Review of Books. You know, it was a review of a book, but he devoted the first several paragraphs of the essay to how at this tumultuous moment in American history, we all should be thinking about and examining the idea of the American nation, both historically and what that history means for the present more. And I paid a lot of attention to that. And so this book tries to do that in the context of the way Emerson wanted us to address the idea of the American nation, wanted artists to address the idea of the American nation. Well, it also occurred to me, I mean, perhaps we should talk about the interesting parallels between Emerson and Thomas Cole. Cole, he was somewhat of a pioneer and was different from Emerson in that in the exhibition that I co-organized with Tim Berenger, we called him an economic migrant. He was from a middling, lower class English background and was raised literally in the center of the Industrial Revolution in Northern England, in Bolton-Lamore, and suffered terribly, he and his family, from the consequences of the emergence of industry and all of the horrors around it. And they were forced to leave and come to the United States. So, you know, the romantic tradition of England carried by Cole to the young nation and seeing, he couldn't help but be struck by the differences between these two worlds that he found himself in. But he was working somewhat on his own. He knew James Fenmore Cooper, and he's the one who takes on wilderness as a prime subject early on in the 1820s. But what is so fascinating and what certainly must have been some inspiration for your fascination with Emerson was uh, Thomas Cole's painting The Oxbow, which was completed in 1836. But it was preceded by his essay, entitled American Scenery, written in 1835. And we have Emerson giving an 1835 lecture, uh, Permanent Traits of the English National Genius, same year. The parallels between the messages in Emerson's Nature and Cole's The Oxbow, we could spend the entire afternoon (laughs) discussing. But what you do in, in, in the second chapter of your book, which was something that I tried to do, but didn't go into the depth that you did was to really demonstrate that while they were thinking and reading and experiencing many parallel and, you know, the same experiences, they probably, we can't prove they ever met, which is incredibly really frustrating. And we can't disprove, but they were both writers. Cole wrote about everything and there's just no factual 
statement of a meeting. So I started working on Emerson because my first book, a biography-ish of Carlton Watkins, that research led me to believe that Emerson's ideas were really important to Watkins. And the more I read Watkins, the more I kept thinking about the Oxbow. And yes, these two guys are absolutely informed by the same intellectual capital R romantic soup. Cole goes to Europe before, goes back in his case, to Europe before Emerson does. And Cole is involved in these conversations in Italy between like 1829 and 32-ish about what makes American art American or what, what would make a painting an American painting. And so this question of Americanness is very much a priority of American intellectuals in the early 19th century. And so Cole is hanging out with Samuel Morse and Horatio Greeno and all the same people that Emerson will, excepting Morse, will visit when Emerson goes to Europe in 1832 and three. One of the things I was really struck by when I read Nature for the first time since college, <laughs> while I was working on Watkins, was that when I read that third paragraph in the first sentence that defines landscape, it's like a perfect definition of the oxbow. I mean, that's exactly what the view is. And so I you know, went into the coal literature to which you've contributed in volume and tried to learn whether or not one of them was looking at the other or reading the other to inform a painting or essay slash book. And when you line up the histories, and so I said that at your coal exhibition, which as I, I mentioned in the, in the intro to this week's show, I mean, everybody just looked at me like I was daft. Americanists are, are not perhaps generally, present company excluded, eager to include non-painting information in their address of American painting. And so everybody looked at me like I was nuts. So I spent some time going into the kind of day-by-day, blow-by-blow of where Cole and Emerson were in 35 and 36. Emerson writes two major works in, in late 1835. One, one you mentioned, the other one is he writes and delivers the 200th anniversary address for the town of Concord, Massachusetts, which was founded in 1635. And in so doing, Emerson learns that Concord was planned on the English town model with a public commons in the middle of it, a public commons that could be used for people gathering, could be used to graze cattle at a certain time of year, anybody's cattle, anybody in the town could use the commons and let their cows eat that grass. And Emerson was really interested in that. And as he thought about what becomes nature, he includes in January of 1836, a preliminary version of that third paragraph of the first chapter, you know, kind of a rough draft, and it's pretty rough. At almost the exact same time, Cole is writing his lecture and essay, American Scenery. Cole could not have known what was in Emerson's journal. (laughs) Emerson could not have known about Cole's lecture because he wasn't in New York. And then as we move forward to when Cole paints the painting and exhibits it, there is about a two-day period when Emerson could have seen the picture before finalizing the text for nature. But during those two days, Emerson had just arrived in New York like a day after the death of his brother. And Emerson, who suffered just a devastating series of deaths in his family in these years, was was just unwound. And it's extremely unlikely that he saw the painting. So there's virtually no chance that Cole knew what Emerson was doing and thinking in these years, in, in 1835 and mm-hmm. six, and then and, and the other way around. So there's this remarkable, what, what I can only conclude is a cultural coincidence that one is making a painting and the other is writing this crucial essay, the most important painting 
of mm-hmm. the first half of the American 19th century and the most important nonfiction book slash essay of the first half of the American 19th century. Well, and they're walking you know, on the same terrain. Absolutely. And, you know, in having read your book and I thought more about their shared experience, even though they did, they weren't there precisely the same time of traveling in the old world in Italy. Oh, yeah. And at this point, it's important to point out that Cole was not an American citizen and he had dual alliances, I think, uh, with his British roots as well as his new American roots. And delving into the history of the old world, the rise and decline of civilizations and artistic traditions, but at the same time thinking about his earlier travels in the American wilderness as he was traveling in Italy. Then he returns and discovers that Andrew Jackson has been elected for a second time. He's furious about that. He despised Andrew Jackson. He sees for himself the changes taking place in the northeastern landscape. He sees favorite Catskill Mountain areas being clear-cut and forests being destroyed. And then he becomes an American citizen in 1834, formally. And I think all of these things lead up to the extraordinary painting, the Oxbow, and his essay on American scenery, where he really takes on the mantle of an artist, an American artist speaking to an American public. Previously, I think his work, such as The Course of Empire, which parallels the Oxbow, but and some of his earlier works were more universal. But the Oxbow was directed at the American public with a question that they had to decide. And it's the same question, I think, that Emerson, as you point out, presents in nature. So I do think the shared experiences, but you make a really interesting point that I guess I have thought about before, but not as particularly as you lay it out. But the sort of disconnect in the first half of the 19th century between New York and Boston is pretty astonishing. I spent years working on Daniel Wadsworth, who is like right in the middle, and he seemed to veer more toward New York. But it is astonishing how separate those worlds were and how things that developed in New York didn't really transfer, such as the emergence of Thomas Cole and later the Hudson River School, doesn't really take hold in Boston. You know, I don't want to use the word regionalism because, of course, that word means something different later. But there is an acute specificity to each place at this time. Emerson's nature, so he writes it in 1836, has 1,500 copies printed at at his own expense, and only 500 of them are bound initially. And it takes a decade for those 1,500 books to sell. And so the book doesn't really arrive in or penetrate New York until 1845, 6, 7, 8, somewhere in there. This amazing example of how Boston intellectualism was so intensely confined to Boston. And, and, and by the same token, painters were traveling in New England, especially painters after Cole, Kensett Church, Gifford, who, who will travel a lot in New England with right. Emerson's acolyte, Thomas Starr King. And Boston is interested in that painting, but not as commercially interested as New York is. And I think one way we should think of the way the two separate intellectual spheres become one is the way how starting in around 46, 47, 1846, 1847, 
painters seize on Emerson's ideas. It's really one of the first and clearest intellectual joinings of two politically and religiously then disparate cities. Yeah, I I think that it's such an interesting moment in time. And I think for Cole, the Oxbow, he wrote in a letter to his great patron, Lumen Reed, as he was working on both the Course of Empire series, this five great five-part series, and the Oxbow at the same time in his Catskill studio, that he expressed concern that the messages and the metaphors, which you talk about in Emerson's Nature, would not be understood by the American public. And and I actually don't think they were completely understood. These were powerful messages that were related through landscape metaphor and probably were not fully understood. And I think his essays, when they're published, his voice comes through. And then, of course, his mentorship of artists like Frederick Church, where he tries to embed these ideas in their minds as well. But yeah, so I think that 1830s, maybe we should see them both as pioneers in a way and not fully understood. I hope that there's a lot more work done on Emerson and Cole together, even though, as you noted, they almost certainly never met. You know, for me, Cole is more painting in symbols than he is in metaphors. For me, the first great painting of that is is the first great American painting of American land, and that is Cole's 1827 painting at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, okay. View of the White Mountains. And it's a view of Mount Washington, which is the, the migration of the Southern patriarch, George Washington, into the American land at a, you know near, near this time. And, and so we see Mount Washington in the distance, and in the foreground, there is an elm tree, which for me is the liberty tree of Boston lore. So it's this joining of the great northern symbol of American liberty with the southern patriarch who helped manifest it in the 1770s and 1780s. And so for me, Cole sits more in symbolism than he does in metaphor. For me, Emerson's nature substantially introduces metaphor into an American discourse, American intellectual discourse that had been then dominated by Protestantism in the Bible. And in fact, in Emerson's own time, I mean, one way of reading nature is as a 15,000 word long (laughs) urging of Americans to use American nature in metaphorical ways to address the American nation. And for for Harvard theologian Andrews Norton, who was moderate to conservative and, and, you know, as the as the theology and religion professor at Harvard at the time, kind of a foremost old guard Boston intellectual for Andrews Norton, Emerson's urge of American culture art, painting, political speech to metaphor was as dangerous a thing as could be imagined. He takes to Boston newspapers and just eviscerates Emerson and Emerson's ideas because he's telling people to use metaphors. And for the next 50 years, American painting especially races to metaphor. For me, Emerson's nature is the introduction and primary urging of American culture and speech to metaphor and the way Emerson insists that Americans do it is build metaphors from American nature, America, American trees, American land, American flora, American fauna to address America itself. Build American culture from America. Don't look at Europe anymore. Stop wanting to copy Europe. Stop begging for European validation. Americans, build your own thing from America and have pride and expectation that that is the way to build a national culture. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, your discussion about the importance of science, scientific treatises plays into that. Humboldt, of course, with his earliest writings, which Cole certainly must have been aware of, and later on Church as the disciple of von Humboldt uh, in the first half of the 19th century, you know, encouraging artists to look at their own landscape and, you know, the careful study of nature, which Cole begins with his plein air studies of tree types, but Church really takes off with the plein air oil study. He learned how to do it during his two years in Cole's studio from 1846 to 48, but that very close study of nature, but then using it as, you know, as you mentioned, using American nature forms as symbols later on becomes very much a part of the Hudson River School. And during the Civil War era, you you really see that come into play. So I think every major painter of the late 1840s, 50s, 60s, and 70s is in Emerson's debt, save one, save Albert Bierstadt. Bierstadt is a German literalist. Every other major American painter of the period is uh, motivated by and, and, and eager to build American nature into metaphor. Bierstadt as ever stands apart, in part because his ego insisted upon it. <laughs> <laughs> but Church, for me, Church, in his, in his work between 1847 and 1865, 66, he is the foremost painter migrating Emerson's ideas into American art. I probably wish I'd hit that a little bit harder in the book. One of the, one of the fundamental tenets of the book is that all of the images in the book are, are works held by art museums and libraries mm-hmm. that have open access policies. So it's a migration of Emerson's ideas about the public commons, which he builds into his definition of landscape, extended into our 21st century digital public commons. And so a lot of my favorite churches that are painted takeoffs and jumping off, jumpings off from Emerson's idea. Ideas are not at open access institutions. Churches is, is, is the number one Emerson migrator. And then another really important moment at which Emerson's ideas migrate into the American art world is Asher Duran's famous 1855 Letters to a Landscape Painter, in which he paraphrases whole sentences I mean, darn near copies <laughs> sentences out of nature and uses them in three or four of those letters. It's a direct borrowing that I think if it were to happen today, probably would raise a few eyebrows. But I was kind of stunned in working on this book that I couldn't find art historians that had noticed that Letters from a Landscape Painter was substantially rooted in, in Emerson's nature. Well, you know, it's possible that because art historians, they think of Emerson from the 1830s, when in fact, the point you make in your book is that nature takes hold later on. And the Hudson River School doesn't really flourish until after Cole's death. And the height of the Hudson River School is really from 1850 to 1870. And that's when Emerson really starts to, you know, his book comes through as you know, the timeline here matters enormously. And, yeah. and, and it's not a timeline of art history or intellectual history. It's America's political history that matters by mm-hmm. sort of coincidence and sort of not. Emerson's book is beginning to be read in New York during the Mexican-American War between 46 and 48. That's really when the book, thanks to Emerson's Lyceum lecturing around the Northeast, begins to escape the velocity of, of Boston. Just at the time Emerson is urging 
American artists, poets, novelists, politicians, anybody else, to use American nature to address the idea of the American nation and indeed the American present, America's sectional crisis is exploding for the first time since 1820, since the Compromise of 1820. So just at this moment when American intellectuals, including painters, are becoming interested in addressing the, the explosive rise of the slavocracy, the way the South is pushing America to expand across America's southern tier and to expand slavery, the highly contentious Compromise of 1850, which welcomes California into the Union and expands the Fugitive Slave Act. Just at this moment, when all of this is happening in America, here's Emerson's book that says, here's how to address America through culture, through painting and poetry and whatever else. This is what you should do. So the book's arrival in New York and its escape from Boston meets the moment in a remarkable way. And I think that political timeline is crucial to how painters responded to the book. And by this point, this westward (laughs) settlement was well underway. I mean, you noted the 1830 Indian Removal Act was early on, but by the 1840s, it was well underway and all kinds of justifications for white settlers taking over Native American lands, homelands, uh, was in full swing. And the Hudson River School, coal not being part of this, but the Hudson River School in many ways participated in that message in the grand scale landscapes of the West. And, and subsequent generations too, of course, as, oh, yeah. as a, a certain exhibition curated by a certain person who might be on this call that's on view at a certain moment, like now, <laughs> <laughs> details. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I mean, that's something that has to be stated. And again, you know, going back to Cole and Emerson in the 30s, I think they had the same understanding of, you know, that we're really talking about white men's understanding of nature and that wilderness could only be understood by civilized white people. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Emerson's definition of landscape takes as its starting point that wilderness has been eliminated that that's a settled thing. And that's a pun I'm using intentionally. You know, Emerson's definition of landscape is of man-impacted land. And he means white man-impacted land. One of the things nature does that I think has been under-considered by Emerson scholars is that across nature, Emerson extends a 216-year-old argument about who American land is for into the cultural sphere. You know, in defining landscape as the space between urbanity and wilderness and suggesting that that be the locus of American artistic address, Emerson is making the political and physical dispossession of Native people core to the invention of the American culture for which he is calling. And this is one of the ways that Emerson bakes whiteness and American imperialism into his definition of landscape and his address of American culture. And it is that concept that the painters we've been discussing really build on Mm -hmm. over the next 30 years. And yeah, you mentioned the 1830 Indian Removal Act as Emerson is writing this book. So the 1830 Indian Removal Act is built upon Virginian John Marshall, who is America's first chief justice of the Supreme Court. The, The Indian Removal Act builds upon Marshall's legal justification for the dispossession of Native peoples. Um, And Emerson basically extends Marshall's construct into American culture in a way that gives permission for American culture to take it as granted. You know, this is a moment when American 
culture, especially American art, is not so much questioning America as it is promoting white America's ideas of what America should be. You know, American painters between, you know, like 46, 47 and 1860 are overwhelmingly interested in promoting American republicanism, in artistically presenting American republicanism as a beacon to the world. Sculptors, even more than painters, underscore whiteness in so doing. But I don't, you know, the great Nell Irvin Painter, past man podcast guest and one of my intellectual heroes, has done the most work on Emerson and his Anglo-Saxonism. It's import in the construction of whiteness in American polity and culture. And so I tried to jump off from her work to try to begin to point to ways in which Emerson's Anglo-Saxonism and prioritization of whiteness extends into American art. And I will be doing more of that work in the decade ahead. Well, a lot of what you've been talking about leads to what you explore in your book that Emerson's nature eventually informs the first national park idea. And again, the painters are supporting that, certainly Bierstadt as well. And that's, you know, it's it's a such an interesting topic because, I mean, I think the average American has never stopped to think about how the national park idea and the actual parks evolved and, and what it actually means and just how white the concept is. I, I think that's in part because historians haven't. You know, the last comprehensive look at the invention of the National Park at Yosemite between 1860 and 65 was written by the great historian and Art Institute of Chicago decorative arts curator, Hans Huth, in 1948, and he republished parts of it in 1957. Emerson is one of the six or seven people most important to the invention of the National Park. His definition of landscape, which creates space for public commons, for a public commons in American life, commons that challenge the idea that all land must be used for rapacious capitalism. That's a really important idea, I think, to everybody involved in the invention of the National Park. Thomas Starr King takes that idea of Emerson's West into San Francisco in 1860. Carlton Watkins, who becomes a great photographer and artist by learning at Thomas Starr King's knee, takes those ideas and Emerson's calls to metaphor into Yosemite in 1861. And then in 1864 and 5, when the state of California asks Frederick Law Olmsted, who was friends with Emerson, who co-owned a publishing house that published one of Emerson's books, when Olmsted writes his 1864-65 Yosemite Commission report that effectively defines the National Park, it's still the most important document, textual document of the National Park idea. Over and over again, Olmsted paraphrases whole sections from nature. He builds his description. His description of Yosemite is a perfect example of a student doing what the professor had told him to do. Emerson says, use American nature to build metaphors that address the American nation and the American present. And Olmsted's description of Yosemite in his report is a description of late Civil War, post-Civil War America as it plays out across the Yosemite landscape. Mm -hmm. It's a remarkable essay. For me, it's one of the great essays of the American 19th century. Olmsted hated to write, but he was a hell of a writer. And then, of course, you have the artists flocking to Yosemite, the painters and photographers. Carlton Watkins is an interesting case in point. And it is fascinating that you revealed that in Emerson's house are hanging 
Watkins photographs that he acquired. <laughs> this is one of my favorite and most embarrassing stories. So about, I don't know, five or six, while, while I was still writing Watkins, I was visiting family friends in Concord and I would go to like coffee shops and stuff like that in the morning. And I was obviously the one guy there who was not from Concord. And so people would ask me, why, why are you here? And I said, oh, I'm um, researching an artist named Carlton Watkins. And people would say to me, oh, so you've been to the Emerson house. I, I'd be like, oh no, but I, I need to go. And after like this happened three or four times, it dawned on me that I needed to somehow get myself into the Emerson house. You know, it was like February, the place was closed. So I, I kind of networked my way and got myself in. And there, Emerson's house has two front doors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it has a front door facing the street and it has a side door through which people who, I mean, I'm shortcutting here a little bit, but, you know, visitors who wanted to come see the great man mm. would, would enter this side door and kind of come into this parlor. And Emerson had designed this parlor to, to reveal who he was. It's kind of a, um, a hanging of art and books as autobiography. And in that room, there are, uh, there's a Christopher Pierce Cranch landscape painting and a Thomas Carlyle uh, picture. I'm sorry, a Julia Margaret Cameron picture of Carlyle, a print after Raphael. Henry David Thoreau constructed bookcase in which Emerson installed a bunch of books that he knew would tell visitors who he was by what he read. And two Watkinses, one of Yosemite and one of Mount Shasta in extreme Northern California. For Emerson, the volcano is a primary and fundamental metaphor for human creativity. And you could see across this room that Emerson was telling you that he recognized that his ideas, particularly in nature, had informed American art. And I think that he understood that his ideas in nature from his urging that Americans use art to address the American nation to his definition of landscape and his embrace of the, of the public commons idea had informed the national park idea. Emerson ended up owning, I think, six or seven Watkinses. And I believe, although it's impossible to prove, he gave a very fine set of glass stereographs to the Concord Free Library of Watkins's work. And so as you walk through the rest of Emerson's house, much of which is open to the public, some of which is not, you can see over and over again that Emerson is telling you who he was by what art and prints and photographs he's installing. And for me, that felt very much like confirmation of things I thought I was finding in, in mm -hmm. his writing. That's really fascinating. You know, it reminds me of painters' homes, artists' homes, like a lot. Oh, that's of a where, great. That's a where great. Church's entire life is laid out, and he's and very carefully he constructs it. You know, that kind of experience is so rewarding. I was interested too, and I think more work needs to be done on the later the Luminous School, John Kensett, Sanford Gifford, Martin Johnson Heed, who I think is a complicated artist, and. You know, the word transcendentalism is often applied to their so-called luminous paintings. I do think, you know, you make a strong case again for Emerson's nature being an influence on these yeah. artists who carry you, you know, to the third quarter of the 19th century. Kensett was familiarly and personally close to the transcendental circle. Kensett was friends with Cranch, for example. He'd study has been dominated by one scholar in recent decades, the way Watkins had been maybe not dominated, but, but held on to strongly mm -hmm. by one scholar, which I think maybe has had an impact on new perspectives and, and, and new contexts being brought to Heed. But here's an example of a Heed thing that I think comes from, from Emerson. Heed's, you know, we all love those Heed paintings of marshes and salt hay 
that he starts making in 1861-ish, 60-61-ish, and continues making for 20 or 30 years. And he makes something like 110 or 120 of them that have survived into the present and probably more. Heed's first marsh painting is a sunset painting. And it's a painting, you know, those marshes that, those meadowy marshes that surrounded Concord Mass, it's part of why the first Bostonians to begin to move west across the North American continent stopped in Concord in 1635. Those sites were understood to be ideally Republican. They were smaller Republican, of course. You know, they were farmed by small landowners. They were a great example of how community could be built in which the community was more valued than the success of any one potentially wealthy individual. They were sites where the land was bounteous across the four seasons. And there's a great book by, by an historian named Brian Donahue called The, the Great Meadow, and he focuses on mm-hmm. Concord, but his research into the history of meadows and marshes is the perfect introduction to Martin Johnson Heat. And, and, and so he is making these paintings of marshes, classic Republican and agrarian landscapes, And his first salt marsh painting features a very dramatic sunset at a moment when the sunset, I think, for me, was well understood by American painters as a reference to a dangerous transition between day and night, Republican and the demise of American Republicanism. And of course, North versus South in the context of 60 and 61. So he's first great salt marsh painting, really the transitional moment in his career is using American nature metaphorically, as Emerson had instructed, sunset metaphor for moment of American transition and danger. And that's really what launches Heed's mature career. That that painting is in a private collection in New York now, but, but I, he, I think we he, may see it soon. I mean, Heed is always surprises anyone interested in him in that, you know, later on, he, he paints two very irreverent paintings called Gremlin in the studio. And I acquired one for the Wadsworth Athenaeum. And it became the favorite painting of the very noted contemporary artists that were kind of part of the Wadsworth at the time, like Saldawit and other contemporary artists. It's such a fascinating work. And the second version is currently on view in an exhibition shared by Olana and the Thomas Cole studio called Cross Pollination. He is not easy to define, but I think he had a serious side, but he had a very irreverent side as well. There's some real puckish wordplay across nature in which Emerson is just clearly having fun playing with words, building that play with words into his argument. And I think that that puckishness was admired by artists who migrated into their own work. You know, the image on the cover, the painting on the cover, I mean, I think it's very much there in in Heat's Gremlin paintings, which I reference in the book, but also in in Sanford Gifford's very, 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 very great, the artist sketching at Mount Desert, Maine, which is at the National Gallery. We see a painter sitting on a rock and we see the inside of his paint box. And there's a sketch kind of inside the lid of his paint box. It's a very small painting, but we can see clearly that the painting on the lid of the paint box is the painting we're looking at. And so these moments of playfulness in American art, I think there is a a, a precedent for that play in Emerson's nature. And I think if you look that kind of playfulness in American painting before 1836, it's not really there. American painting's pretty serious and trying to be, you know, buttoned up Italian or buttoned up Constabulian. I mean, I I think that we're only at the very beginning of understanding all of the ways in which Emerson influenced American art. Well, you end by with a discussion of 
the end of landscape in a way with the precisionist movement in the early modern era, where artists like Charles Sheeler, who interestingly was avidly collected um, Americana, Shaker, furniture, but was the leading precisionist landscape painter celebrating you know, factories, industry, urban centers uh, in many of his works. And of course, the, the Hudson River School goes into decline in the 1870s. So I think that if Church is the most important 19th century artist mining Emerson, as he did between 46, 47 and 65, 66, the most important 20th century Emersonian is Sheeler. Hartley is probably a pretty close second. Mm. And I, I think that if, if, if you look at Sheeler, you see, especially his titles, you see that he, he knows what, exactly what he's doing and he's winking at us about it. So his paintings, American landscape and classic landscape, not only use Emerson's word, but he builds the constructs in those paintings, such as the reflections of factories and lakes mm-hmm. or rivers or pools of water. You know, he's using Emerson's reflection metaphor. Emerson introduces reflection as a metaphor for American republicanism. The electorate, the American electorate, selects its government and the American government is a reflection of the electorate. And so Sheeler does that over and over again in those Rouge, River Rouge paintings. And then my one of my very favorite Sheelers, and I Sheeler's paintings are not yet out of copyright, so I couldn't include them in the book. But in, in 1943, he makes a painting called The Artist Looks at Nature. Again, the title screaming at us, Nature. And it's a, a picture of suburban backyards. You know, Emerson had like coal, as we were discussing, Emerson had celebrated and, and elevated a view of men's farms and, and woodlots into a nature framing device that could inform American culture. And here Sheeler is updating what Emerson had seen. So woodlots and farms were no longer the view within that space between urbanity and wilderness. Now that space has been suburbanized. And so Sheeler's picture shows enclosed suburban yards within a view shed that unites them. Emerson put himself within his definition of landscape by describing landscape as the view he saw before me, while Sheeler includes himself (laughs) in the artist looks at nature. And it's almost like at the very end, and I don't know if this is actually the last part Sheeler painted, but I like to pretend it is. I mean, it seems like it might've been, might be a better way to put that. In case we missed what Sheeler was doing here, that he was addressing the American nation and present day America. He includes a little patch of red, white, and blue in one of the upper corners of the painting, kind of to me, his way of making sure we understood that he was addressing America just as Emerson had been 107 years before. It's a very great picture. And I, I, I hope other scholars will really dive into the relationship between Sheeler and kind of others of the precisionist generation and, and Emerson, because I think they are all taking dead aim at blowing up Emerson's constructs and turning turning the corner on, on, on and into the American century. Perhaps a final question. I know from your Instagram account that you spend a <laughs> lot of time in nature yourself as, you know, hiking in, I don't know if we could describe it as wilderness, but... Um, I don't know if we can describe anything as wilderness anymore. Mountainous landscape. <laughs> has has that, I mean, is it just, are you inspired to do it because of your research or has your research been inspired by it or both? I learned while writing the Watkins book that you'll learn a lot by being out in the land. 
So sometimes what you learn is by retracing the steps of an artist or writer and seeing what he or she saw. And sometimes you realize that, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of American art historians have maybe too much assumed over the decades is that when we see a scene in an American painting, that that's an actual real place. And so I think often by being out in nature and going to some of those places, such as in the White Mountains, and discovering that they weren't real places in those paintings, that we understand how those paintings were constructed. And one reason those paintings were constructed and composed as they were, was to make them metaphorical in their address of America. The the, Mm -hmm. the metaphor comes in through the modification of the place. So yeah, being out, being, being out and in, I will often just kind of find myself understanding something. I was, I was hiking somewhere in the Northeast in New England a couple of years ago and started looking at elm trees and how their branches worked and went. And all of a sudden I realized that so many of the trees I'd seen in 1840s and 50s American paintings in front of all those sunsets were elm trees. And you can't think of the elm tree in the context of 18th and 19th century America without an understanding it's the Liberty tree. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's a wonderful place to end. We could go on for hours more, but I congratulate you on a wonderful, wonderful new publication. Thank you, Betsy. It's always awesome to talk to you. And I always learn a lot from you, both in typed and talked form. So thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art, draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction from the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bashara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Experience Nasher Mixtape, a series of tracks or micro-exhibitions featuring the greatest hits and the newest works at the Nasher Sculpture Center. See works by Basquiat, Brancusi, Melvin Edwards, Miro, and more, including Judy Chicago's Rearrangeable Rainbow Blocks. The vibrant major work by Chicago celebrates the part women artists played in the legacy of minimalism. Exhibition closes on September 26th. More at NasherSculptureCenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Lisa Corinne Davis joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of Point of Departure, Abstraction 1958 to Present at the Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska. I'm delighted to say we taped this live with the folks at the Sheldon just last week. The exhibition, drawn primarily from the museum's collection, surveys two-dimensional abstraction and is on view through December 23rd. Davis's work is in the collection of museums such as the Sheldon, of course, the Museum of Modern Art New York, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. Among her many awards 
our National Endowment for the Arts Visual Artist Fellowship, and a Tiffany Foundation Award. Lisa Corinne Davis, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm thrilled to be in this exhibition at what I understand to be the most beautiful museum in the United States, the Sheldon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start with the place that I think we have to start with your work, and that's with the grid. Painters have been using grids for at least six or 700 years within the Western tradition further, if you, if you extend around the world. For most of that time, the idea has been to use a grid to simplify a painting so that it might be expanded into a larger work, for example, like a fresco in a Catholic church. Your project has always been the exact opposite of that, which is to complicate the grid. Uh, sometimes you make it wavy or layered or colorful spatially deep rather than flat, which is wild. So first, why did you want to engage the grid? And second, when did you realize your project was going to be to zag instead of to zig and to complicate it? I guess I have to start answering that question by talking about that these paintings are ultimately about me and my experience as a Black woman, as a light-skinned Black woman who grew up in a Orthodox Jewish neighborhood and went to a Quaker school. I'm interested in that people have had the tendency to want to categorize people, places, things, to simplify things. And formally in a painting, the biggest equalizer and non-questioning measuring format is the grid. It's democratic. It's on the surface. It's not about scale. It's about size. And so that gives you a kind of stable ground in which to start to insert things that might differentiate that that structure. Were you initially at least primarily interested in the long history of the grid and art, or were you primarily interested in other places you found grids and ways to play with them, to to complicate them? Yeah, I, I mean, I came to abstract painting like many people through representational painting. I mean, ultimately, I was trying to find a form to talk about this malleability and perceptive aspect of race. So the first works I did were self-portraits. They used to be black and white drawings submerged under a, um, a kind of graphite sheen. And I would put a cultural artifact on top. So first thing you saw, let's say, would be a Greek vase. And then you'd see this face lurking below. And I was trying to set up the question, what would make you think one thing belongs to the other? Like, what does this vase have to do with this woman here? But those became a little formulaic and didactic. And I, I really was thinking about not only a racial experience, but just a kind of way we want to simplify information in general. This can be expanded beyond my own biography. And that's how I came to the grid. So I was not a formalist in the sense that I was embedded in modernism in a way that I wanted to put a wrecking ball to it. It just is mm. a formal structure that is probably the most clear formal structure in painting. And therefore, it seemed like the thing to be the basic architecture for beginning making my abstract work. Well, and I think it's in the paintings. I mean, people can go to the Sheldon and see the painting there, or go to your, your website and they are not, you know, a Solowit grid. They are not a, a, an Agnes Martin grid. They are jubilant and exuberant and 
and jumping off from grids. So, you, you know, you mentioned a moment ago that your early life has been or was the product of often atypical associations. In your girlhood, you attended a Quaker private school, right. even as you lived in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. Correct. Um, I, I do not know how your life has not been optioned for a streaming series. <laughs> so looking back, and I'm sure you've done this, were there cultural experiences or cultural assumptions that you experienced that you think have ended up in your work? Sure. I mean, I would say one of them came from teaching. So I was teaching an institution and they wanted to bring in an expert. The expert was going to tell us how to teach to different cultures. And this expert had every culture under a single label. So the expert would say, if you're teaching an Asian student and draw a certain sign on a blackboard, and if you're teaching a Slavic student, draw another sign on a blackboard. And I knew, even though I was in my early days of teaching, that one of the things I had to do when I went in the classroom was not work with these general structures and categories, but that Asian student could have been born in New Jersey and not Asia, you know? And so I had to unravel layers and get to know stories slowly in a kind of discourse and getting to know them, threading it through things I knew and experiences I had. So I kind of parallel that to the paintings, the layers and the paintings are a bunch of, of prompts in a sense where I want someone to be able to try to figure out what's going on, where they are, how big things are, how small they are. Is this natural? Is this artificial? And you're doing that based on things you already have experienced in your own life that you might associate with something else. And so that kind of just like assumption versus like really having to unveil something is, is really embedded in the work. And then I think like, I, you know, I think, oh, I'm not perfect. I've, I've done this myself, right? So I had a, a sitter for my kids at one point and she was Dominican. And I, she said, Lisa, can I make your kids dinner? I said, sure, you know, make something Dominican. I come home from Yale and there was turkey noodle casserole on the table. And I said, that's not Dominican. That's like quintessentially American. She says, well, I grew up on it in the Bronx. So, so that also is like, it's like, you know, what we want things to be and how clear we want lines to be is so distorted by histories, locations, perceptions. And so I try to indicate subtly in the work locations by things that might reek of mapping perceptions by scale, and then facts by the grid that gets torqued and messed with. I think what we're talking about is that you have found ways to use the grid and the ways you construct your paintings as cultural critique. I know this is probably going back a long way, but was there an experience or an artwork or an artist who showed you that abstract painting could be cultural critique. I mean, for me, it was Clifford Still and that the violence in his scything abstractions were both about the violence of farming, which he, he talked about sometimes, and he really hated farming and he really hated the violence and killing that went into farming. And of course, his paintings are also about the violence he felt toward other people, particularly women. So yeah, are there, are there 
painters or artists who showed you that abstract painting could could still be powerful cultural critique? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that you can see the paintings as cultural critique, but I actually think of them as personal narratives, personal mm. navigations. So I don't think of them that way, but I but it's interesting that you brought up Clifford Still because he was exactly the person I was going to when you asked the question. Because of the specificity of relationship to a painting. I think people often think of abstraction as general and it can be open but specific at the same time. So still with someone was very clear about where things hung, how you entered a room. He was really thoughtful about how you experience what he was laying out in abstract terms. And so I'm very much interested in taking the viewer through a set of experiences. And so I'm always trying to hone the language to putting them in a, a perceptual space of how I see people in the world as clearly as possible. So that, that would be how I, how I relate to Clifford Still, but he was the first one came up. So that's amazing. I don't see my work as political although maybe anything about blackness is political. I do think of it about culture, but I think all paintings is about culture. It's about culture of a given moment in time. And I, and I don't see it any differently than, than any other painting in that way. Let's talk a little bit about how you make your paintings. They're, they're really physical. They're enveloping experiences. We were talking about layers a moment ago. Take the Sheldon's deductive data, for example. Mm -hmm. Do you remember how many layers it takes to build up a painting such as that one? Well, first off, I should say the painting that is at the Sheldon, I thought was done for a couple years and then went back to. I, I don't think any painting has less than six layers on it. And I think of the paintings as conversant. So when I put something down, it sets up a position in the painting, either a spatial position or an organizing position or suggests something in the real world position. And I try to counter it. I try to take it off mm -hmm. its game a bit. So the next thing I do will be to do something to make it not have that firm of a stance, right? Because I'm, I'm interested in malleability, not, you know, stability. So it's a conversation that goes back and forth and there's a vocabulary. I have the vocabulary that you picked up with the grid. I have the vocabulary of geometric shapes. I have natural color and artificial color. I have transparency and opaqueness. And so no painting looks like any other painting. It's just that those elements get, keep getting resorted around so that I hope in the end, like in, the, in looking at this painting here, are we in an aerial position? Are we looking down? Is it vertical? Is it small? Is it big? I just want everything to be shifting spatially and what it suggests all the time. They take a long time. They're oil paintings, so layers have to dry. I never give up on a painting. I will sand things down and let the ghost of what existed before remain. I'm interested in the back plane of the painting disappearing, so the depth of it goes beyond the physical plane of the canvas. So it just keeps going like that. I work on multiple at a time until there's enough um, confusion that I stop. 
You mentioned, forgive my shorthand, the, the colorful blocks, the colorful rectangular mm-hmm. forms that have mm-hmm. come into the work in recent years. They're spectacularly disorienting, at least for me. I can't ever tell where they are between me and the grids, you know, air quotes underneath them. They seem like they should be something to hold on to, to allow me or a viewer to find a hold within a painting. Mm-hmm. But instead, they, they're very real and tangible, but they don't work that way. <laughs> and I think I have a guess about where they might come from or, or how, or maybe with whom you were engaging and moving toward them. But before I ask about that painter, where do they come from? Where, where, where did, where did, where well, did okay. do you, do you uh, remember where they came so from? So curious on who you're thinking about. <laughs> Thomas Naskowski. Oh yeah. Well, you know, Tom, yeah, I, I definitely think about Tom's work for sure. But I also think about a lot of painters and I think about- I can um, tell. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, I, and when I think about identity, I don't think it's just about racial identity. I think about painters' identity. So I kind of embody other painters sometimes. Like, so sometimes in the work there's spills. So I'm being like, you know, the spill painter. And then there's like the hard geometric person. And then there's the absorptive color painter. And so like, I, I kind of feel free reign to kind of, try things on as a painter in order to, again, not to assert my vote, my identity as a painter as this or that, but a kind of copulation, cop- copulation of all of those things together. The range of influences that have come in and out of the work in the last 20 years or so is kind of wild. So if we go back 13 years to a picture like Stratagemical Enclave, paintings like that and other paintings made in the, the mid to late 20 aughts, the grid is is sublimated, if you will, to anthropomorphic shapes and, and kind of emergences. And yes. the pictures feel very biological, almost primordial, nearly chaotic. It seems like merging the grid with biomorphic biological shapes is is a serious move. Do you remember where that move came from? Yeah, I mean, I think these were much more landing in the mapping zone of things. And so I was I was focused more on maps than on that bending that surface with the grid. I was also a little more, in, I'm still interested in it, but I think the notion of cartooning and graphic novels were more in my interest then. I think I, I, I really wanted to take a turn towards something that might feel like serious, secure, high modernism <laughs> that's run they amok. They do. Like that's run amok. So I think that's maybe on some level, I'm trying to take down modernism on some level. I mean, this is something I guess you suggested earlier. But I, I mean, I think they absolutely take down modernism. You, you, you make the grid, which modernism has used as a flattening construct, and you use it like a fishing net in the water. Right. Because ultimately, if you think about it, like, how can there be the one, you know, <laughs> like that, the Zen one of modernism? It's like, it just feels wrongheaded politically to suggest that. I think I have to mess with it. And so, but I still want the seriousness of the tone of the way one approached those paintings as like intellectually thoughtful zones, but try to broaden it a bit. So in stratagemical enclave, I get how the grid is used in a map-like way. The grid kind of reads off in like city blocks, for example, right, right if you will. 
So how do the blobs or the biomorphic shapes function in a map-like way? They could be landforms, they could be water zones, but but one of the things in, in, in describing how I build the paintings and how I'm always countering moves. So if you make a spill, ah. it's an action. Once you outline it, it's a shape, right? To me, that's fun. <laughs> I think, ooh, that, that's like, that's being contrarian to the initial gesture. It's like I've twisted it. Like the spill is supposed to be an expressive, free gesture, right? But now I've stopped it. I've frozen it by simply putting a line around it. And then if I put some lines across it, it becomes like a three-dimensional form, like up at the top right there. So it becomes, you know, more crustacean-like or animal-like. So that's what I do. Like I think about one painting gesture and then how I can diversify it by an action or twist it from its initial firm stance or what ha- or the way it's supposed to operate in that painting. I can visualize you saying that to a student during a crit and the student dashing for a notebook and <laughs> writing down if I put an outline around the blob it's suddenly something else. It's one of those like great <laughs> painter things that yeah. painting lovers love at least I like love hearing. Although you know we haven't really talked too much about color yet. You are a phenomenal colorist. Your colors exist in different tones and intensities within each individual painting, which you referenced a moment ago, but I kept my mouth shut. And that range of tone and intensity is, is, is a big part of what gives, especially the pictures in like the last five or eight years, depth. Mm-hmm. Are you playing with color that way because you know, you're a really good colorist and you can? Mm-hmm. Or is the way you move through, say, blues and greens within a picture giving that picture specific references. I think we both mentioned water a moment ago, or is it something else entirely different that gets you to that kind of tonal variation? So like we, t- I was, we t- started with talking about the grid and how when a firm grid is put in the painting, we don't question it. You know, We don't question any trickery. It's measured, it's on the surface. I think the same thing is true with color. There's colors that I call objective colors, which are colors that we trust. So in mapping systems, for example, we use the primary colors because we don't question, you know, this yellow marks that, blue marks that, red marks that. But if you take it off its primary zone and it can, it shifts to a more subjective space where it feels like something. So I I like to play with color from trustworthy colors and that kind of map and sit on a surface or a place and ones that move to feelings of toxicity or uh, like an internal psychology. And so I play with that range of color. I, you know, I also like that like a green can feel like nature or it can feel like a toxic spill. So I try to take a color and play with moving it in and out of those zones when mixing and placing them. Speaking of green and disquieting plot, you you build a composition with red, white, and blue. Loaded colors in, in American art going back to, you know, when they were British colors in American art. <laughs> and it, it, it's, a, it's a Trump era painting in which it feels to me like the red, white, and blue are being corrupted by the green. Mm-hmm. Do you use colors symbolically that, you know, not literally, but, but symbolically that pointedly? No. 
<laughs> Never. Yeah. That's truly formal for me. Always. 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 So other parts of the way you construct a picture aren't necessarily only formal, but when it comes to colors, it's about the relationships between colors and that's it. Yep. The the relationships between color and what we associate color with associations. Mm. So it's fine that you have that association, but it's not something that I think about. Do you make moves in the pictures now or earlier in your career that you think of as references to specific events or specific structures or places and times? Like, you know, I, it's, it's, it's something I started thinking about because I started seeing the, the green and disquieting plot. You've talked a good bit over the years about maps in your pictures, and it's possible to read some of those pictures as including, you know, the water and the watery use of color in those pictures as referencing climate change and the way water will overwhelm us. Some of the blobular forms read that way. I think actually maybe you've mentioned that you think of them as being liquid. I think there's a reference to digital time, you know, web events, ah. for sure. I mean, I think that the fluidity of information and the the lack of like what you trust and don't, I think, as information is certainly been in the work for a while, the digital world. That is how we can construct something to make someone believe anything. And what what does it take to make someone believe something? So yeah, the, the notions of truth and belief and humanity are certainly in the work. So I would say that's the only thing I, I consciously reference in the work, yeah. Calculated computation where the grid and the blues and the greens are wavy gravy and moving mm-hmm. and yet some parts of the picture you kind of hold or nail into place with outlines right that's that kind of reference to what's real and what's not and, and yeah. then of course there are also shapes in that picture that are ephemeral like the pale pale blue parts that seem to be moving as we look yeah and also the things that seem to be the most emphatic are the least trustworthy so the compo you know the compiling of those greenish dots like formation in the center seem to be like something concrete is happening here, <laughs> but what is it? You know, so like the insistence that there's something or some truth or some, yeah, something we should be able to name that, that impulse to want to do that. I, I want in the work, but it's ne- it's, it's just as ephemeral as anything else in the painting. Before we take questions, I want to ask about two specific painters that I think are in the work. We mm-hmm. mentioned one of them a moment ago, Tom Naskowski. The way he loved jamming planes of color next to each other in ways that had no business working. And they always worked, of course. Right. Um, and then he put them you know, up against colors like Pepto-Bismol pinks and greens that also had no business being there, but it was all glorious. And I miss him. And my biggest podcast regret to this day is that when he was on the show, I was terrible. And didn't, yeah. And so you mentioned a, a, a bit ago that when, when when I raised his name, you know, you kind of were, of course, of course, of course. So what in the way he jams those 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 planar colors, planes of colors together, do you like? And what about the way you jam those planes of color together? Do you like? I think Tom's paintings from his roots have that mad magazine look to them. I mean, I love the poppy contemporary look they have. 
but something he did, which is something I try to do, is he had no formula. You know, he had a vocabulary for his work, but not a formula. So each painting was a kind of assortment of these discordant elements, and then he made them sing together. Recognizably so Niskowski, but never Pat. Right, exactly. And so, but, but you know, they, they did have a kind of, or they do have a kind of cartoony overall look to them, which is great. Again, like I, I, I definitely want to thread this through modern painting for me. And so that's how they're, they're, they're different. The other specific reference about which I wanted to ask is in registered impersonation, which is from last year. It, it, it is a thorough complication of the grid, a kind of chuckle and wink at the mm-hmm. grid. Even as you give us what I very much suspect are kind of Cezannean pieces of fruit that sit within and defy the grid much as Cezanne's did. Is that some of what's going on there? Sure. It, it, it's all going on. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think back to Niskowski just for a second. I, I think I want that kind of like, huh, moment in the ping is like, what? Like that doesn't make sense. Some of it, some of it is Plinger, some of it's Cezanne, some of it's Grid, some of it's Web, but like the orange bits, like, huh? You know, like, so. They're very, huh? I mean, that, yeah, so, they, they come out of nowhere. Right. So that's, that's hard because in building the pingings, there's a kind of logic in, that that plays out. Like I'm having a conversation with a thing in my studio. It says this, I do that, I do that. But then every once in a while, I just have to throw in a wild card. The conversation has to stop and something, a spaceship comes in and just does something on the painting. That's important to me, that element. I mean, this is just so you know, this is a very small work on paper. It's hard for me to do works on paper. I don't draw so they're always little paintings, which take as much time as a big painting. And small sizes are difficult for me to work on because I can't get the range of mark making. And they can allow for more risk, though. That's true. Lisa Corinne Davis, thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.